fam. Welcome back to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman. Today, we are joined by Ben Demon, an athlete who's been very intriguing to me over the past year and an athlete I've been very excited to have on the show. Ben popped on my radar last October when he finished third at the Grand Raid. And as I watched the live coverage, I wondered... Who is this American that I've never heard of competing near the front of one of the toughest races in the world? (laughs) Turns out Ben is indeed an American, though he lives in France with his young family, and he has kept the positive momentum going from the Grand Raid into a huge breakthrough 2023 season. Ben won and set the course record at Penicolosa in April. He won again at the UTMB Andorra race in June. He had a tough but motivating DNF at UTMB Mont Blanc in September, but then finished the season strong with a third place at Templier, one of the biggest races in the world there in Southern France. Still early in his career, Ben is very much flying under the radar, but if there is one person whose stock is undervalued, if I could personally invest my life savings and one athlete's stock, I just might choose Mr. Ben Demon. So it's great to have him on the show. In prep for the podcast, I went back and read all of the posts on Ben's Substack. It is a super worthwhile digital publication that I would highly encourage you all to go subscribe to. And in reading through all of his material, it's really clear that Ben thinks in a very unique way about training, especially. So this episode talks a lot more about training theory and training strategy than most of our episodes, which was really fun and interesting for me. After hearing Ben talk, I'm sure many of you will want to go subscribe. So I put a link here in the show notes. It's honestly a must read, especially for those experimenting with their training. Hope you guys all enjoy the conversation. As we approach the end of the year, we are getting ready for some fun content at the running event trade show in just a couple of weeks. And then we roll right into some exciting changes for the second edition of Trail Runner of the Year that we'll be announcing soon. So a lot of fun stuff in the pipeline as we close down a hectic 2023. If you care about free trail and enjoy what we do, there are a couple of ways that you can support us. First, you can support us directly by joining Free Trail Pro. A lot of great perks and we're now sending welcome gifts to all of our new annual members. Second, you can support our brand partners who we deeply love and appreciate. In addition to Speedland, we work with Gnarly Nutrition and Ketone IQ. So head to the show notes and apply the discount codes on some great trail products. Thank you so much for the support. Hope you enjoy the show. Free Trail Podcast is presented by the brand new GS Oak from Speedland, the fifth footwear commission from the world's coolest brand. The GS Oak was designed in collaboration with Speedland athlete Liam Lonsdale and also in collaboration with fellow independent running brand Path Projects. The GS Oak features all the great Speedland design considerations you know and love. Double boa fit system, proprietary drop-in midsole, removable carbon plate, 100% beaded HTPU external midsole, Michelin outsole, and all the trademark Speedland quality and durability to help you dominate your local trails. The gorgeous pink, purple, and black colorway might be my favorite yet. The GS Oak is made in extremely limited quantities, and I can't emphasize that enough. We do anticipate selling out, so get on it now. Pre-order is open at runspeedland.com with delivery scheduled in late December, just in time for Christmas. 
runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your purchase. Ben Demon, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, I'm happy to be here. You and I have been in and out of contact, I think, since June of this year, but you're wrapping up an incredible season in the 2023 trail calendar. And so now feels like the perfect time to do this. So I, again, really appreciate you for tolerating me being in and out of contact. And here we are finally making it happen. And it feels like the right time to me. And hopefully it feels the same to you. But Ben, as I always do here on the show, we start with a traditional opening question. You made a comment that it's sort of job interviewee. So hopefully this doesn't put you on the spot or feel too formal, but you know, it's a good way to, to break the ice. So with that all being said, what makes you, you, what are your unique strengths and weaknesses? How do they show up in your life and in your running career? Yeah, I think there's really a risk when you talk about yourself that you just come across as pretty pretentious, but, um, you know, I am a competitor like through and through have been since I was a kid and it's a real asset when you're an athlete, but like it can be a pain in the ass for the people in your life. So it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely plus and minus to being a competitor, but it's sort of the engine that drives me. It's, it's the thing that gets me to want to want to progress in the sport and in life in general. And it's, it's really the, the engine and the, the drive is focused around this element of like, it's not always, can I beat somebody or something? It's just, can I improve? Can I actually attain this, this dream that I have in my head? And, uh, it's really that thirst that, that keeps it chugging. And then on top of that, I'm fairly like, well, especially I used to be extremely adventurous, like just uh, a desire to go check out cool places and see things and try to get as much as I can out of life. Like my, my twenties, I spent largely vagabonding and, uh, like really old school style backpack tent, like just hitting the road, hitting the trails. And, um, it was really just this, this lust for nature and thirst for adventure that set me on some cool paths. And it's what brought me into the sport originally was I thought, man, that's so cool that you can just go out without all of your equipment and knock out a hundred miles. Like people are feeding you along the way. What a cool experience. So, um, I, I really thought the adventure side of the sport was, was the coolest thing. And that's what kind of brought me into the fold and then eventually sort of trying to layer on the athletic side now, but, um, yeah, I think those are the two qualities that really that really kind of have moved me in this direction. And along the way, I'd say the strength has been it when I have something in my head, I can be very single-minded and yeah. focused. Um, of course, the like the drawback to that is you tend to be that single-mindedness makes you somewhat myopic. Like you might be just sort of seeing things in the short term and neglecting things further down the line. And, uh, I'd say naturally being a competitor, you have to be a bit selfish at times. And, um, I've improved. I have a, I have a family now. So I've, I've sort of like been using that as a new source of motivation is how can I move the family forward? But, um, surely competition moves different directions. 
the adventurous competitor. It already makes perfect sense. We could yeah. probably end the podcast right here, but <laughs> I want to come back to both of those things because I, as I told you, have in the last 24 hours devoured everything that you've written on your Substack, And I'm going to make sure we put the link in the show notes so all of our listeners can go subscribe because you put up a lot of really insightful, intelligent, useful information up there. And the two things that really pop out are your competitiveness and your adventurous spirit. And starting there, actually, in the first post, you said something that I want to start with here. And I'm just going to read it. It's just a couple sentences and have you respond to it. You say, in order to improve, you must work hard. In order to turn hard work into success, one must have three things, love, fear, and time. Please expand on that for the audience, Ben. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like my roadmap to, to like attacking that next level is like, how can you really do it? it? You have to be all in. And those are the three sort of elements that sort of holistically put the, the thing into proportion. And, um, you know, I'm, I think it's, it's one thing to, to dabble and it's another to like really set your sights high and go for it. And I think the plan of attack, I mean, if you just focus only on doing your threshold sessions, like you're, you're not going to get there. You have to have this like sort of first principles. And those are the ways I think about it is you have to love the thing to death. Like it has to be there. And, uh, you know, you have to have the, the, the time and ability to do it. You have to create the space in your life. You, you, it, it's a, it's a must, it's a, it's a time intensive endeavor. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's really the backbone of, of what I, what I do, you know, it's where, where it all sits. So where does fear come in? You talked about love and time. Yeah. What about fear? Well, fear is, fear is the precipice. It's like this, you know, sometimes it, I had this experience on the, I hiked the Appalachian trail in 2012. I had this experience like being up, uh, in the white mountains of New Hampshire and you're in a cloud and like, there's a ridge line, but like, you don't realize you're on a ridge line at all. You're just following the rocks in front of yourself, but like off to one side is, is like a sheer drop, but this in and of itself isn't, isn't too scary until you consider like what's over there. And, um, I find once you once you put that into perspective that like you can fall like things can happen it just makes you so much more concentrated on towing that line on being super focused and uh i think really the driving factor of fear now is more like you've got you've got a family like you can't fuck this up man like you gotta you gotta go for it it's so true it's so true so backing up we don't know each other this is the first time we've ever spoken i only started following you on instagram i think after your third place at the Grand Raid last fall. All I know is that you're an American living in France. So give us the condensed, you know, history of your your background, where you grew up, how you ended up living in Europe. Yeah, um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I was a soccer player all my my childhood. First team, all state, Division One. I. I was all right, but yeah. uh, you know, I love a team sport. But is that that like adventure side is totally missing? Obviously. Um, so yeah, I was in a long distance backpacking. I would just squirrel away money, taking odd jobs and then spring out and do hard stuff, which eventually led me to the Himalaya. And, um, I, in 2018, I crossed the Nepal Himalaya by myself and then went into India with the intention of stringing it together. And it was a bit rocky, like in terms of permits and stuff. So it wasn't like a perfect line. Anyways, I, I wound up meeting a French girl and sort of 
change the trajectory altogether. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we live here now. And is is she also sort of a mountain person and adventure spirit? She was a solo traveler, more so more like on the this this spiritual searching side. You know, I was more like the mountain addict, as it were. Awesome. And you're now yeah. raising, uh, I think, a two and a half year old son. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. Well, I've got a 14 month old little boy too. So we're, uh, we're kindred spirits in that way. So say more about your history with the long trail stuff. Give the listeners a sense of your experience yeah. with through hiking, how that evolved into trail running. Yeah. I mean, all right. So 2017 was my first exposure to long trail. I was actually working in, um, the Brown Bear Cafe in Silverton, Colorado as a waiter and sleeping in a tent by the river, like for the, for a couple months. And, um, I just hiked, a, I'd done a, a route known as the Hayduke trail in Southern Utah, Northern Arizona. It's like a real savage unmarked backpacking route that, um, it just tests your ability to navigate and your, the whole adventure side. And I was broke. So I was just hitchhiking around, wound up in Silverton and found a job at the cafe and then hard rock rolled into town. And, uh, I saw these guys, I was like, this is, is this, is this real? Like these, these guys are like really into this and it seemed like what I'm doing, but they're doing it light and fast. And I mean, honestly, it sounded hard, but like it's doable. Like you just walk, right? Like you just walk a long time. And, um, I picked up a pacing gig. I got to pick up, uh, I, I paced for Nick Corey the year he, he did 26 hours. So, um, yeah, it was sweet. I ran from grouse gulch to uray and then i picked up a slower runner a guy i met he was just at the cafe asked for i said i'll pace i paced from uray to kt just before kt um yeah so i got to do like a huge two giant chunks of it and i was like this is so cool like this is this is this shit i have to 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 like work on this so i could try it as well and um I was, uh, I became friends with, um, Caleb who runs the high lonesome. And so I just decided to jump in for their inaugural year. And I'm just using my base fitness as a hiker. I mean, I was just running casually from time to time and, uh, I did okay. I mean, 26 hours had like a whole, that whole epic self-destruction resurrection moment. And I was hooked after I was just like, this is so cool, man. Like, yeah, it, you get, you have the perfect playground to push yourself. It's like safe enough where you could really go for it. And uh, there's so many, le I saw immediately how many levels there were, you know, I saw Killian running down the mountain with his arm in the sling. Yeah. Like I saw those, the, like this legendary like experience over there in Silverton. And so it's really, cool. it was just, it was just a hook bait sinker afterwards. I was, I was on. <laughs> well, man, now it's going to be so incredible when you go make your hard rock debut eventually, but you've done the Appalachian trail. Like you say, you've done the continental divide yeah. trail, that yeah. Hey Duke trail, yeah. I guess noticeably absent is the, the PCT and the JMT, maybe the Colorado trail. Do you have ambitions with, with reconnecting with those routes or are you just like more focused on, on competing at this point? Um, you know, the, well, mostly I left off the PCT, JMT, those, the Colorado trails, they're just too domestic, you know, like I really wanted, I wanted to get as deep into the wilderness as we could get, like, and obviously the lower, lower 48, we have, it's hard to really get back there, but you can in that continental divide corridor, you can in the desert, 
Um, I'm sure there's places you can on the West Coast, but in general, it's a bit more tame. And so really my trajectory, if I hadn't met my wife, was to like start pushing towards Alaska and doing more of like the the, the more classic frontiersman like stuff. But I'm really fortunate. I met her. I'm so much happier, like just with a sense of stability in life. And once I found competition, it reawoken that beast that was always in me. And my mind is very focused on racing yeah. these days. All right. Yeah. So before we get to a lot of the stuff that you've published on training and racing and competition, it reminds me while we're on the subject of these long trails, something that you said about aloneness and remoteness and how it awakens deeper instincts in humans. And I felt like it was a yeah. sort of a powerful description of what it's like being out on your own, especially in the deep woods, as you just described. Is there anything you want to say there to add color for the listener of just what it's like to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so crazy. Like when I started that, I didn't know how to make a fire properly. I, I didn't, I had literally zero ability. The, the Appalachian trail was my first backpacking trip, like first one. Okay. Six months. Let's go. So I learned, I figured out everything and, but I, it, you just sort of understand that it's there. It's just dormant. A lot of it, the navigation, the sort of the self protection stuff that you go through and in, in hard moments. Um, it's really the hardware is already in there. It just has to get tapped a little bit and it wakes right up. And, uh, but that experience is so cool. Like when you do get stuck in storms out there in the night and you know, you're shuffling along trying to find a place to sleep, you just have these, these very deep connections with, with, and it sounds cheesy, but it's like these deep connections with nature and it's very addictive. It's for me, it was very addictive. I was like, this is, I love that. Like almost out of control feeling I had a lot there. Yeah. Something I missed, but you know, I think it's good to just sort of maybe tie off that chapter and use it, use it somewhere place else. It's fascinating just to think about the, the deeper intelligence of our biology and how it just gets awakened by the natural surroundings sometimes. So coming back to the, the more practical, less esoteric stuff, again, there's so many beautiful nuggets of wisdom on your sub stack. And I wanted to start with something that you said about a daily check-in practice that you've adopted this year from pro triathlete Lionel Sanders. I'm somebody who's familiar with Lionel and admire him also. So maybe for the people who are unfamiliar, who is Lionel Sanders? What makes him special? And what is this daily check-in practice? Lionel, I think he goes by, I think he says he's a YouTuber now, but, uh, he, he's an excellent, like world-class triathlete who's got great content out there. And, uh, he's, he's sort of like old school in a lot of ways. Like he's just, he, he's a fiery character and he, he can use that to great effect in his racing. Um, but I, I think like he, he ran into problems of maybe overtraining stuff and his, his idea was to check in with yourself every morning, even if you have a plan, like maybe you have to, for for the training day, maybe you need to adapt that to how you actually feel. And, um, but it's always very difficult because sensations are deceptive. Fatigue is deceptive, all these things, but just sort of, uh, doing an honest, like, okay, am I, am I worked today? Like, is it really appropriate to do what I'm going to do or should we revise that and come up with an adapted plan 
that's better suited to this state that I'm in. But then there's times, you know, where you got to pull the trigger and you got to work under duress, under fatigue. But um, I think, yeah, I said that, but it's, it's actually really tough to do. I, I try to do it, but I still, I still mis- still make mistakes when it comes to overtraining. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you're very honest and transparent about the, those mistakes. And it seems to me like, you've developed kind of a deep education on training theory. Like you talk very clearly about volume and intensity and the strategy behind your training. And it seems like you track all the metrics and the numbers, but you also have this sort of like antenna for the sensation stuff. Like you just talked about, how would you describe the training philosophy and where did you develop the education? If you were sort of like a dirt bag and backpacker for such a long time. Yeah. Sure. I think, I mean, I think it starts with the fact that I had like an athletic background until I was what, 20. So I, I played a lot of sport, but, um, what, uh, I started running a lot, like after 2018, like I really started running like every day basically. And, um, I, I never had a watch. I, I bought a GPS watch two years ago. So yeah, I, I ran for, for two years, basically ran every day for two years without a watch. And I was always in new bases doing different things, but I would just run every day and I would just really listen to my body. And I think I sort of just developed a, a natural ability, but then I sort of grounded that in science. I read the uphill athlete, um, all the, the books that came out from, from Steve house and Scott Johnston and Killian Jornet. And I read, uh, coach Coop's book. I I've, I've tried to absorb as much information as possible and then try to square that with how I have seen things. And, um, and then I've used myself as a guinea pig a lot. So just playing around and then a lot of it, you know, just conversation and listening, you know, doing a lot of absorbing of, of, uh, podcasts and videos and, you know, you can study other sports and learn things as well. So it's, uh, it's still ongoing, but, um, I try, I like to think that the fundamentals are sound, but I think there's just plenty of room for, for learning and continuing. Where does that analytical side come from? Have you always been that way? Like when you were a soccer player, were you tinkering with ways to train and different ways to develop skills and things like that? Um, I think like, it just comes back to that competitor. I was always naturally with the endurance side was, it was noticeable very young, like on the soccer field, we do those beep tests and different sorts of fitness tests. And I just scorch everybody like with, you know, it was just consistently like that. Everybody just said like, he's, he's not going to drop. Like you just keep going. And, um, I never thought seriously about running. Like, unfortunately in America, I feel like there's just not a, there's not a, a great stigma in the teenage years around endurance sport. It's so focused around football and, um, you know, even as a soccer player, it's sort of low on the totem pole. So in France, you see this great admiration for endurance sport, whether that's cycling or skiing or, uh, or running for that matter. Um, and so I, it sort of, it sort of went untapped, I think like my natural endurance, um, level. Um, but I, I was just a student, you know, as somebody who could, who could test well, just learn how to figure out the t- how the test is done and do well on it. So it, it's something just up in there. I don't know. Yeah. And it seems like this is a relentless exploration, seeking improvement as a runner now based on this competitive drive. And it feels like this year was a major breakthrough for you. And you wrote something about how 
you know, this year you've been much more intentional with your rest. So maybe say a little bit more about that because, and I want to get into kind of like your sort of unique strategy with tapering, which I think you wrote about before Penicolosa. But I think this is sort of practical and important for, for listeners too. Just like you were tinkering with things and maybe overdoing it last year, still had good results. But this year you, it seems like have gotten a lot more analytical, a lot more strategic with the rest. And maybe that's been part of this, what's been a breakthrough season for you. Yeah. I, what it is, it's like, you see the numbers guys can put up and you think like, I got to do that. And, um, you, I mean, you have to build to that. I think uh, a lot of us can do big volume, but it has to be something, a long-term project, maybe several years, maybe six months. It's different for everybody. But what I did like last year before the grand raid was two months of all in effort, just waking up at three in the morning to go run for three hours and then come home and watch the kid and wait for my mom, for my wife to come home from work and go out again in the dark and just, just squeezing as much as I could out of the time. Cause I thought, I'm going to fail. Like, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to have a horrible day because I'm undertrained and I just did it and did it, did it. But afterwards, like, it's just not a sustainable exercise. You can't, you can't just keep doing that. So it's not that I rest that much. I just distributed the training load a bit better. It's, I still have done, I'm doing actually more training this year than I did last year, but last year I squeezed it into just a couple months. And now I've, spaced it out. I've done a little more periodization, trying to use my winters as they should be done. It's not like off season time to chill. And it's, it's time to really focus on logging quality, moderate, long duration stuff. Like, mm-hmm. So the European guys are mostly on skis. Uh, I've got some skis. I, so I, I do that a couple times a week and then I'm, I, I I'm in the gym on the treadmill on the elliptical, on the, the trainer logging quality, modern intensity time and, um, stack invert things like that, but not trying to burn it down, just trying to get that nice long burn. And then using that as a base to sort of launch, propel myself off of in the mm-hmm. future. Cause I think, you know, I talked to Albin after Tom Plier and like, he does just absurd amount of skiing. And, uh, that's something which he's, cultivated is what his lifestyle is where he lives how he how he, he's a he's a full-fledged pro one of the, the best that there is flat yeah. out um but that's something you create you know you, you you make a way to get there to to create that space for yourself and um what i did do is really listen if i'm if i'm toast i'll just jog for 30 minutes i can tell still tell myself i went for a run and honestly, I usually feel better if I do a little bit as opposed to nothing. It's really when you pull the rug out from under where the fatigue really sets in and it gets a bit nasty, but, um, to really appreciating easy effort, I think would be the, the more better distributing and then easy effort means easy effort. Okay, great. So now speaking more yeah. specifically about the breakthrough season, starting with Penugolosa where you won and set a massive course record breaking honest Nomberger's mark, who is also one of the best in the world. I found it quite interesting what you said about the taper strategy that you rested a couple weeks before the race. And then you had like a little bit of a final push before a micro taper. And again, it just mm-hmm. like struck me as this novel 
approach that seemed to be developed by your own intuition and not necessarily by the training textbooks. Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, I need to do that again. That the, the beautiful thing about that was I had the time, you know, I had like, I had you, if you don't front load the season with too many races, then you can properly create the build. I felt like I arrived at a great level of fitness. Like I was really happy with it, but I felt like if I did another week or two of hard training, I might tip. So I just, I just divided it in half for a week. And then finish that week with a 10K like road race, just so one intense day, the rest of the day is only recuperative effort. And then I barely like the 10K hurt for muscularly for 24 hours. But then after it was just getting back into that, that training mode I was in for one week and then, or more like 10 days and then just three rest days before the race and turned out really good. Um, but I think there's something there where it's like, the amount of work that you, when you put in a really good block, like an intense block, there's a delay between the end of that block and when you, you actually absorb the training. Yeah. It's not within two days. It may not even be one week. It might be two weeks later. So I think there's, there's something about, it's really hard to know, is the training going in? Is it actually going in or not? But one thing that for sure can give you like, just if you have the free time, if you have this, the time before the event, you can assure that it's in there by providing adequate rest beforehand. And then, because I find like that, the traditional taper, which I've done a lot and I did before Andorra, I did before UTMB, I did before uh, Templier, where you just train until the week before. I don't know. You There's so much up in there. You feel like you don't know if the fitness is in there or not. You don't yeah. know if it's stuck. So it's almost a yeah. confidence thing rather than a absorption adaptation thing yeah and i think it's also that weird head game that traditional taper does is specific like i just when you really cut the training out it's just a horrible it's terrible but if you know look this isn't a proper taper this is just a recovery week then it's like mentally it's it's way easier and yeah so you know i I have to try one again we have to keep practicing figuring it out i think the tapering strategy is God, it's so interesting. I listen to like Coop's podcast about all the, the tapering stuff and they've dialed in the mathematical model, which works, but there's so much variability out there. It's just hard to know what's the best route. I think it's very specific for each athlete. Yeah. Awesome. So also the thing that I thought was unique, that was uniform across all of your blocks this year that you published on your Substack, was the five-week training block. In other words, before Penigolosa, Andorra, UTMB, and Templier, you had very yeah. specific five-week yeah. blocks. Why yes. five weeks? Why do you structure that way? And how did you arrive at that being the sufficient dose of training? I, well, I think they could be a little longer, but I don't think they can be much shorter. That's sort of my reasoning. It's like, I think if you're going shorter... It's not enough time. I think you could go longer, but in the racing schedule, it's hard to get them further than that. So five weeks just sort of naturally happen. I think it's enough time, but it's still not that much time. You know, it seems like a lot of training to do, but I mean, especially for something, I was like, man, if I just had two more weeks, I'm sure I could specialize a little more, but it's, it seems like, um, maybe if you race too much, it's hard to get a solid five weeks. And for me, it's important 
to keep that training, that training consistently. And, um, five weeks seems like a nice arc. Like you, you can have a couple weeks, which are a little better than the other weeks, but you can, you can definitely adapt yourself to a certain training load. And if that training load corresponds with what you're going to find in the race, then it has a nice equilibrium. And outside the five week block, are you just doing what feels appropriate following your intuition? And then in that five week block, it's much more structured and intentional. Uh, actually all those five week blocks were just like calendars. Just like they just it literally was five. It was one week recovery and then, and then launch, or maybe, you know, it was two weeks recovery. So they were seven or eight weeks apart, all the races. So yep. it was just naturally five weeks, but me, I, usually after those ultras, I have a easy week and then get back on the legs week and then launch into the next block. Um, and then use like at least one week built in for tapering out. Okay. So before yeah. we get to the Andorra race, another thing that I found interesting was that you said that four hour runs seem to be the sweet spot for you in terms of the endurance work. And you don't do a lot beyond that, which I think is probably comforting for a lot of listeners to hear. Can you expand on that? Just like the importance of volume, but not too much volume and finding the correct dose without going overboard. Um, yeah, I think it's important to say though, that those four hour training sessions are not loafing around. Like they're pretty, they're, they're, they're intentional. And I'm often trying to put myself into a state where I'm a bit fight or flight somewhere at the end of that run. Like I'm a bit nervous about the last climb because this is the only way it's so hard to train for our sport because we can't ever simulate the race distance. And so one way of doing it is to push a little harder early, but then have it set up. So you have something hard at the end which scares you, which makes you question it. Are you going to be able to do it? And then to really crack the whip on that one so that you're building something in the brain. That's like, when I feel tired, I can still climb. I can still handle this. Um, but I find the four four hour, it works in life. Okay. Like it seems acceptable with the family. Cause I can get up early enough and still come back for lunch. Like that's practical. Um, but I think if you are distributing the training load correctly throughout the week, then you can, you, you can thrive on putting in a four hour long run, you know, once every two weeks, even like if, if you're still keeping a consistent, um, consistent amount outside, it's just, if you can afford to go for a six hour, eight hour run, like that's great. But it's, I think that you suffer a lack of quality after a while, unless you're Zach Miller, like you really suffer. Like it's hard to just keep the pace, you know, they keep hammering the pace the whole way. Um, and for me, it's more important. Like, can we hit the paces? Can we hit the, can we hit all the metrics? Right. And can we get a good aerobic stimulus out of it? Can we recover in time for next week? You know, the whole thing. So that's, that's the sweet spot for me is there. Okay. So I guess one more thing before we get to the Andorra race too, I've noticed that, I mean, for all your races this year, you did very intentional course reconnaissance, nearly running the entire course prior to the competition. Talk about that from both like an athlete and a coaching perspective. Yeah. If you can make it happen, so worth it. It's the most, it's the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, you will improve your time if you can get on the course. It's just, it's so much easier to, to have, to develop your race strategy. For me, race strategy is important. So 
if you're just looking at the topo, it does not explain enough. It just doesn't. I mean, even if you know the length of the climb, you don't know how technical it is. You don't know any of that stuff. And once you arrive, then you can really me. I can sort of shape it in my mind like that one plays to my strength. That one I need to be careful. So I think just on a from a race strategy standpoint, there's nothing better than going and doing the course. Do it, um, and you can use it as your long days and use it as a training tool as well. Uh, obviously, it's hard. You, you have to make the effort to get over there. So there's always a give and take. But I just decided I got to make it happen. This episode is brought to you by Ketone IQ. I am not joking when I say Ketone IQ has changed the Bowman household for the better. My wife, Harmony, and I started testing this product earlier in 2023, and it has become a subject of almost daily conversation. The thing that is amazing is how helpful it is across both sport and especially lifestyle applications. I take a shot before all my workouts and long runs and definitely feel a deeper level of endurance energy and especially mental focus, though I have nothing but my own subjective experience to back this up, I have a hypothesis that it actually makes me a little bit mentally tougher, which I absolutely need right now. Similarly, Ketone IQ has really helped me to cut back on my caffeine intake while increasing focus and clarity during my long work days. It's like you got the mental energy of coffee without the inevitable come down or caffeine crash. Ketone IQ has been a legitimate game changer. We couldn't recommend it enough. Visit hvmn.com forward slash free trail 30 to get 30% off your first subscription. hvmn.com forward slash free trail 30. Okay. So UTMB Andorra, you kept the positive momentum going, winning again in a super fast time, qualifying for UTMB and at this point, you must really be feeling like you're emerging into sort of the upper echelon in the sport, clearly competitive with the best. You know, you ran away from Pau Capel at the end. But like looking at your historical race results, like, you know, that 26-hour finish at High Lonesome, solid, but it's not immediately obvious that you're going to yeah. be in the top category in For the sure. sport. Yeah. Talk about how you sort of like developed into that or was there a turning point where you began to view yourself that way? Was it at Andorra or is it before? Um, Andorra was a bad day for me. It was a hard, just suffer fest. Like it wasn't nice at all. Like it was just, just suffering for, you know, it was the first four hours were good. And then, it, but it, not even because the, you know, you have to descend like 6,000, 7,000 feet like right away. It's, it's rough. That course, we just cooked the whole day. It was very hot. I didn't have great legs. I just shuffling along and we made a good time. So for me, it was cool to see like on a bad day could still do pretty good. But, um, that was thanks to Shumi. I mean, I was guiding, I was more or less doing the ups in first and he was more or less doing all the downs in first, but man, his downhill was just, it was just so brutal. Like he was attacking all the descents. And I just told myself, you have to stay on him. You you cannot let him get away. And without his pressure on those descents, I wouldn't have made that time. But his descending was, it was mind boggling. And um, yeah, yeah. So the, the confidence thing after the Grand Raid, for sure. Because France is a celebrated race. It's like a big deal yeah. in France. And uh, it was completely out of the blue for a lot of people. And for me, I mean, for my friends that I train with here, I mean, they believe that I could do something good, but we didn't know that we, I could get on the podium, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then it, it was really just in my head, like, okay, we're gonna, if we have, look, you still got beat 
like that in that race. They still got smoked. So how are you going to get better except just really, really continuing to go all in? I think I'm lucky genetically. Like I training sticks. If I work hard and train, I get better. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I feel really grateful for that, but it's, it's also just a, it's just a determination up top. It's just focus. Any other specific takeaways from Andorra and maybe expanding on the racing dynamic at the professional level, as you described Pau Capel sort of making up time on you and Jean-Philippe, you guys ended up finishing together. He would attack on the downs. You were a little bit stronger on the ups. And I think like at this point in the development of the sport, these racing strategies, these racing dynamics are really evolving into really interesting cat and mouse games sometimes. And it's not always like you you have to be tactical and intelligent and you have to develop that as a skill. You being a competitive Mm -hmm. person, any other takeaways from Andorra on that front? Yeah. Is the Andorra was cool because the race strategy worked. It was really the first time I saw it. It clicked like it, it, I mean, it worked at Pendigolosa as well, but, um, Andorra is really specific. I was like, you're gonna, you're gonna work hard at the first part, but once you arrived into Andorra La Vela, you've, you, you have this 2000 meter climb, 6,000 feet, and it's, it's almost runnable almost until the top. It, it's technical, but it's not too steep. So I was like, you gotta run, you're gonna run the whole thing. You gotta run as much as you can save the legs, arrive at the bottom, run. And John, when I got down to the, the city center, I heard that John Philippe had eight minutes. And I was like, how the fuck did he take eight minutes? <laughs> like he had two, it's so insane. Like I descended at four minutes pace, four minutes per K. So four, yeah, not, it's respectable. It's not terrible. Not it's slow. not, yeah, yeah, it's not slow. So he took eight minutes and I was like, he, well, it's either he's having the day of his life or he's, he smoked his quads. Like, I don't know. Um, anyways, I just, in my mind, it doesn't matter. Just do your thing. And man, I just gotten, I just found a good, a good stride and how he caught me at the beginning. And I just, I just kept growing on him, taking a, taking time, taking time. And then it breaks into the Alpine and there's, there's shimmy, like just right there. Mm-hmm. And I had good legs. I just kept kept pushing and then we saw each other at the aid station and started working together, but it wasn't working together. You know, it's just, you're using, using the energy and the inertia. And when somebody's got something, you're missing something, you, you just sit on him the way they would in cycling or something. Yep. And, um, it's so funny that cycling analogy, I want to come, come back to in a second, but, but like, you know, how Capel finished well under the course record time. I'm pretty sure you guys were still running the same course that Zach had set the mark at the year before. Uh, it's slightly different. Two things. One, they ran a night. They ran, they started in the evening, ah. um, which advantage for us. Cause it was, it was, is better on the descents, but we got, it was hot. very hot yeah. for us. But uh, the, the second last climb was slightly different. You still wind up at the same heights. You do the same amount of climbing there. They had a small variation. I did them both because I thought it was going to be the old one. And they're, they're too, they're, they're too close to say one is harder. One is easier. Sure. So, um, but in Powell Capel, he lives there. He literally, it's his backyard. Like right. he, I mean, 
Yeah, he's, he's, he's got of, some advantages over there. One of the greats of our generation, a UTMB champion. And we should say that you we're sort of using this as the springboard and the qualification for UTMB yeah. Mont Blanc in 2023. So having that validation, that feather in your cap and beating a UTMB champion at that race, how were you then using that as validation or confidence building as you approach that final block towards UTMB. Did you have a belief that you were putting yourself in a position to be competitive? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that last climb, I think we put like 20 minutes on Zach Miller on that last climb. Like we smoked and it was all me just like, we're, I'm not letting that fucker catch us. Like we're, <laughs> I just, I started laying down this insane, you know, just a good cadence hiking uphill, like just, hard, hard, hard hiking is too steep to run. But I mean, everybody's cramping, everybody's suffering. I'm like, we, we cannot, we cannot let him catch us. Yeah. So, but Shumi is in the same boat, man. Like he, he, the same feel, you know, it's just, it's the sport, man. It's just how it's, it's how it gets sometimes. Yeah. And, um, I think that's one reason we finished together was first we were neutered from the difficulty of that race. Like we were just like, let's just finish like yeah. this is too hard but second we shared like these these moments where clearly like w by ourselves we might have broke but together we could keep going and um that was pretty cool and but what happened was yeah coming into utmb man i thought i was gonna do great like i thought i could do 20 hours like i really felt felt like okay yeah. i can hit that pace on those kind of those kind of climbs i I felt specific. I felt I was adapted to this, but I felt it played to my strengths mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, I showed up race day feeling a bit strange and just had some very strange respiratory symptoms, which started on the first climb got worse on the second climb and then progressed on the descent. And, you know, it was just gone. Like the race was gone so fast. I had cramps and but before we hit, uh, Consumine, like, yeah. Yeah, it so, doesn't so make any sense. But, I guess yeah. talk, talking about that, you know, you kind of came into UTMB very much under the radar. One of the most interesting dark horses for those of us who pay attention to the sport very closely, but still your star is rising. A lot of people have probably never heard your name. Were you thinking of yourself as, you know, sort of like being capable of competing against the top dogs there? And then like, as oh, you're dying for it, man, yes. I was so excited to run with those guys. I was, dude, uh, I, I saw you need to think about this stuff. It makes yeah. sense because we always go out to Lake Contamine at the beginning of the race and watch the leaders come through. And then we hustle up to Notre Dame de la Gorge. So I saw you go through both of those places and it's funny because in retrospect, you and Tom Evans both looked similar. Like you were both sort of labored early in the race, both running, you mm -hmm. know, in those sort of top five positions and seemingly both having sort of mysterious maybe viruses or illnesses that led to, to dropping out. So I guess, yeah, provide that summary of the symptoms you were experiencing, where you dropped out and, and what sort of the learnings were in the aftermath. Yeah, I just had this crazy tightness in my chest, which I never have, like running even running hard uphill. And it became difficult to pull air in. Like I was just it was a very shallow, weak breath I had. And associated with that lack of oxygen or whatever, just put my brain into a total like just fuck with me. And it set off muscle cramps. And then it just all starts 
spiraling and and then the negativity became just so loud and i seem to be somebody who can handle hard mental moments but i cracked hard like because i just i re i recognized physiologically i was not operating correctly and it wasn't something i could push through at all it was just like this is just in your face it's these are just symptoms that you're experiencing i tell myself sensations are just experiences they will pass it will all be good and it just didn't get any better it just got worse and worse all and I pulled the cord because the race was gone and my goal was not to go for a hike around Mont Blanc. Like it was just yeah. to run hard. So, you know, it's that, but that race, man, you can, I can dwell on the, the, the virus. I could dwell on the specific, but these things, I mean, they manifest somehow or another, something was missing. I mean, whether it's just a weak immune system or something going on in your head, like you have to look elsewhere as well. You yeah. can't just, write it off as random you know yeah um so it's a, it's a, you have to take it as a learning experience unfortunately it wasn't what i wanted but it's sport man you don't get what you want it's you just shit happens yeah all right so this is a great time to sort of come back to the competitive spirit because in your post-mortem it feels like there's some deep frustration maybe even anger that is coming out in the writing sure. yeah. of the summary and, you know, you can sort of feel it oozing the, the competitive spirit. So maybe talk about that, that anger, how you use it to, to channel new learnings and new adjustments to your training and preparation and, you know, how that competitive spirit kind of propelled you forward through the rest of the season. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just take it on the chin, you know, and just use it as fuel. Otherwise it's just brings you down. So you know, bad experiences are actually better or more, more applicable, more readily usable for that sort of thing than winning. I mean, winning is great, but what do you learn from winning? I mean, you just, you don't learn that much. I mean, especially yeah. if you don't, if you don't critique what you've done, but when you have a bad day out, it's like hurts. It sits in there, it turns in your mind, it eats away at you. And if you can sit down and really hone in on things you can improve in the future, then you can use it. And then just the raw motion is very usable. It's that stuff is like, it's, uh, it's ready to go off. You know, I, I was pumped to get back into training. I mean, I saw the doctors, I made sure we were good, but as soon as I could get in, it was, I realized how, what a beautifully cathartic exercise running is when you're just not feeling great. You just throw it in there and throw it in the engine, watch it combust. You get done with the session, you're like, fuck, I feel great. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Is there any learnings about like rising to the occasion on the biggest stage? Because you had been riding such this amazing momentum and this string of phenomenal success and race performance. Mm -hmm. And then you arrived at your biggest goal and you DNF and you're DNFing yeah. at the one that really matters. Any lessons about rising to the occasion when it matters? When it matters? I, I don't know. Maybe just the details, maybe just wash your hands more. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Did you feel comfortable on that stage though? You know, like that's kind of uh, one of the cool. things. Yeah, yeah. I felt relaxed, man. I, I felt before I had like two weeks before UTMB, I had a couple bad nights, you know, yeah. but the week before coming in, I was sleeping too much even though it was kind of in day. I told the doctor how much I was sleeping. He's like, yeah. do you sleep that much? I was like, not normally. Yeah. But, um, I, 
you felt comfortable on the star line. I mean, as comfortable as you can be standing there for 15 minutes in the sun, but, uh, it's, I don't know. Cause once you start running, you're just running and then you see people. Yeah. I don't know. Dude. It, it, it doesn't freak me out that much. No. I'm so excited to follow you over the next few years, man. I feel like you have all the tools and now you have the anger and the experience from the race to go back and absolutely lace one. This episode is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition and the Orange Drink, the collaborative drink mix between Free Trail and our good friends at Gnarly. The Orange Drink is a new formula of Gnarly's flagship drink mix, the Fuel 2.0. Loaded with everything you need to keep you well-fueled and well-hydrated, the Orange Drink comes with an increased sodium concentration. You know me self-proclaimed electrolyte evangelist. This Fuel 2.0 formula is my perfect trail elixir. The delicious salted orange flavor is both sweet and salty, the perfect combination to prevent taste fatigue and keep your appetite high, no matter how long you're running. The biggest bonus, Free Trail Signpost logo and my big goofy face are both printed on the packaging. One of the coolest examples of true collaboration in my entire career. Visit gonarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15 on the orange drink or any of their other incredible products, BCAAs, performance greens, protein powders, collagen, creatine, they make it all and I use it all. So go check it out, gonarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15. So moving on from UTMB, you closed out your season just yeah. a couple of weeks ago at Templier, one of the biggest races in France, one of the great races in the world. In my experience, I did it back in, I think 2016, had a shitty day, still loved it. Um, so between UTMB and Templier, predictably you sort of cut the volume, increase the intensity, what you, but you sort of employed what you called polarization. So I want you to say, say more about that and how you adjust training from like a big mountain hundred to sort of like a faster sure. 50 miler. Yeah, I just pulled all the medium long distance stuff. Like I just what's the point? I have the engine. I know I can run for twenty hours. I knew I could run for twenty hours. I was like I can do I can I can operate at sixty-five percent of max for twenty hours for sure. But um I mean I didn't know that. That's my in my brain. That's me thinking that I you don't know you never until you arrive at the day. But uh I just said, okay, the aerobic engine is sufficient. But what are we missing? Where can we actually make quick gains? Fortunately, body seems to adapt. Most of us seem to adapt to high intensity stuff like fairly quickly compared to some of this longer. Um, so I just uh, pulled out the stuff that just puts fatigue in the leg, legs for no reason and shifted that extra energy to hammering, you know, some double threshold or track sessions or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I actually want to ask you about that too, because it seems like you make a habit of doing the Killian Journey special, the uphill oh, yeah. tempo, flat tempo, uphill tempo workout. Describe that for the listeners and how you employ it in your training. Yeah. I think I'm still learning how to do that workout correctly. It's one of those things again, where you just see your hero doing something. You're like, I maybe could do that too. And you know, the first time I tried it, I think the first time I tried, I tried to do the proper, do vertical kilometer and then uh, run a 10 K tempo and then another vertical kilometer. And I like died, you know, I just flat out, like could barely get up the second, second climb. Um, 
So, but I thought like, okay, what's the concept here? What's he playing with? He's playing with this, this thing where what we encounter in trail is this shock we have moving from up to down to flat and doing it all at a relatively higher intensity. Um, and I think he's employed that to great effect in a lot of the shorter races, obviously, uh, because he can, he doesn't suffer on any of the, 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 if we see trail running as a multidisciplinary sport, which it is, then we understand if you want to be the best in the world, AKA Killian, then you have to be the best at climbing, the best at descending, the best at the flat. You can't ignore one. And so he's come up with a way of finding interactions, how they play with each other and simulating things that happen in the race in training. So the way I've done that is sort of picked climbing duration, which resembles something I'll find in the race. So if I'm playing, I shrunk them a bit. I'm like 400 meters or 1,200, 1,500 feet of, of climbing and doing it in specific ranges, not max effort. And then kicking off on the flats and going back up and coming back down and just trying to find, trying to understand, like teach the legs. This is how it feels when you're coming off a hard descent and then you're asked to run fast. Then this is what it feels like to explode back up the hill. And the problem with that workout is so much is going on. You know, you have these, these high shifting intensities, high shifting terrain, and it just works you like through and through. Um, afterwards, you don't know if it was good or was just a torture session, but I'm determined to keep trying and find out how to like make that, those, that template work. Gosh, man, I'd be scared to race you, bro. It makes me just feel that this, your generation, man, you guys are just so talented. You're so knowledgeable. You're so well-considered and yeah, man, you've got all the tools to like just take the sport to the next level. It's so exciting. So coming back to Templier, the racing dynamic yep. and the cycling analog that we just touched on, you describe a moment when you surged to within eyesight of eventual winner, Jonathan Albin before sort of easing off and that it registered yeah. as something that you regretted after the fact in hindsight. So say more about that specific moment, because I think it's revealing of this racing dynamic conversation. Well, I mean, it was just the most frustrating thing because we're all running in a pack. And, uh, I mean, I was running with like pretty close, like right next to John and you can hear all the runners breathing and I'm breathing the same level as John. We're both in a, we're both running like fast, but we're breathing normal. And then you've got like six runners, just full gas, like breathing out of their mouth, like crazy, not knowing what's going on. You know, that it's going to get winnowed down very fast. Like this isn't going to last, but the first descent, you're just going from a nice wide forest road to a tiny, muddy, slippery, challenging descent. And I got into like fifth position or sixth, just naturally. We all funnel in. John escapes. Like, and we I started losing time. So I'm like, I can go way faster than this, but I'm stuck. And I'm like, you can't lose time in this race. You can't just be knowing you can run faster and not doing it. So I'm trying to force my way by. It's just so difficult. It's such a small trail with a, you know, fall risk and everything. So when I stuck by, I knew I was like, well, the goal was to run with John for as much as I could. That was the goal. Like see how long you can run with John Albin. And, uh, unfortunately it was just still there basically, because after the first aid station, you run like a false flat and then you start the next climb. And I, I made the gap back up 
and then I saw John, but I could, I could, he was right in front of me. So I could hear him breathing again. And I noticed that he was relaxed, like very relaxed. And that perhaps it wasn't me that caught him, but him who was recovering, you know, in which after the fact it spoke with him, it's what he was doing. He was recovering, but I knew that we couldn't have this imbalance between me burning matches and him recovering and then expect that to play out well. Like yeah. not with a guy like him. It's just not. So I just refocus on what I can do in the moment, put out a respectable pace, but sometimes you got to run your own race. You know, um, unfortunately I would have liked to have just been with him the whole time on that climb and then done the next plateau section with him and eventually watched him disappear i'm sure but um you know but how cool if you get the chance to yeah how cool right but yeah and and also like just add a finer point on it because what you say in your blog is something like man i wish i would have just got on his wheel and then seen what happened not like got to win within eyesight and then ease off because Mm -hmm. it is like cycling right when you lose that contact it's hard yeah, to make it back up. Her. But like, if you do get back on somebody's wheel, you can sort of like ride that momentum and you can work together. Like For you sure. and John Philippe did at Andorra. It's so fascinating. Yeah. So you ended up finishing third place at Tom Plier, win and course record at Penugolo. So win and course record at Andorra, the one blip of course, being the biggest run there at, at UTMB, but three huge podiums for you this year. Again, major breakout season for you as you reflect on the season now entering the off season what are some of your your biggest takeaways and whatever you're willing to reveal about plans for next year i'm sure the listeners would love to hear yeah um first thanks that's really nice of you to say all that stuff you know i watched you go through our i I was following along all your hard rock content leading up man i watched through the i followed through the night over here watching you try to catch Francois and all that. So, you know, you've been an inspiring performer in my, my eyes as well. Thank you, bro. Um, but essentially like the hard part, I did template to test myself. Like, can you run fast? It's one thing to run the grand raid. It's another to go run template. It's two different spheres and I can run fast. I seem to be okay at hiking as well. Um, and I, I mean, I have this conversation, uh, with, with my friends as well. It's how is the goal to find your specialty or is the goal to just follow your passion and just do what you want to do and just to never really specialize, but keep spreading it out over all this stuff. And sometimes you have some great performances. Sometimes you just fall wherever it is. And me, I'm struggling with that question personally. Like I, I, do I want to, Am I compelled to operate more on the speed domain or am I compelled to stay more on this, um, to stick more towards the, the highly technical big mountain races? Um, unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that I'll be at UTMB next year. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's plenty of controversy, but you cannot ignore the fact that that event over there in Chamonix is fantastic. And it's, there's no ambience like that anywhere in the trail world. So, uh, somebody who's, who wants to, to live that dream, man, it's, it's sits with me. And I don't think about the organization. I don't think about any of that. I think about that course. I think about that ambiance, the people, the competitors, I think about what's the meat of it, what's important, you know, 
And that's what I'm most drawn to. And now the challenge is to add a reverse engineer, a buildup and a calendar, which suits that. And, you know, I've gone through a thousand scenarios. I still don't know what is best. You know, I do know maybe like I found after the Templier, I had a, a good sort of like a, it sort of boosted the fitness. Um, so maybe it's better to tune up for UTMB with a slightly shorter format than something long. But Does we'll Andorra see. give you automatic qualification still, or do you have to qualify again? Uh, Hoka was generous to donate or to give me the the bib for this year. So I'm using Andorra for next year. So we're good to go. We're good to go. I guess quickly yeah. before we kind of wind down and get to our closing question, I'd love for you to say more about the specialization versus generalization comment, because mm. the athletes that I always admire the most are the ones who do have range across distance mm -hmm. and across course profile. You know, Jim Walmsley is a great example yeah. of that. He can go chase a hundred K world record on the road and then he wins UTMB and he's great in the mountains too. Do you, Marathon do you qualifier as well? Yeah. Yeah. Where do yeah. you see, where do you see your, your biggest strengths right now? And yeah, I guess like any other sort of like short-term or long-term goals that you have for yourself in the sport, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear. Well, I, you know, running is a beautiful game because this, the line is constantly moving, you know, where you, what you do one year immediately becomes the new baseline. And then there's another level and another level. So now, I mean, I would love to achieve some, some true top level peak performance. You know, I really would like to, to do, to do, uh, just higher, just a bigger, bigger time on more compet in more competitive races. Um, and knowing that I think you have to have in mind some idea of specialty. Like you can't just throw yourself at everything that comes your way. Um, I feel like the hundred K distance is cool because it still has this athleticism to it. And then once we kind of supersede that, I mean, it gets more Epic. I still love that th when things get bigger, they in your mind that something else changes, but you lose some dimension of that true athleticism, which I love. So I think maybe sweet spot for me is in that 80, 100K range on stuff with climbs and things. But yeah, I, I, I demand a lot more on myself next year. Yeah. I'm, I'm not complacent at all with this season. No, can't wait to see, another... man. I can't wait to see yeah. it. And yeah, having like perused through your Strava and stuff too, man. You got you got all the speed you need to, you know, shred those flatter, faster races too. Plus, obviously, Andorra's as mountainous as it comes, and you lace that one. So, man, I think whatever you set your mind to, you've got the talent. You've clearly got the competitive drive, and I think critically also, you've got this like really unique strategic thinking in your training and you're a coach too, right? Maybe you say a couple words about yeah. your, your coaching business. Are you taking on athletes right now? How can people find out more? I, I do have a couple slots open for, for characters who are interested in pushing themselves and trying to achieve the next level. I just, I work, um, I keep it relatively small because, um, I just want to have a developer relationship with all my athletes and, um, see what we can achieve together. Uh, so if people are, are interested, I've got way more information on my website and 
uh, yeah, there's I'll, plenty of links out there to find me. Just shoot me an email if you're interested. Cool. And I'll, I'll put a link to the website here in the show notes too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could get my ass back on track too here, Ben. We can talk Are about you coming that back, Dylan? <laughs> I need to come back, dude. I've been talking about it for two years and uh, I can't seem to find the, uh, the discipline, but anyway, that's for another conversation. Our final closing question for you, Ben, before we let you go, appreciate yes. all your time. Who is one person that you admire could be inside or outside of sport living or dead. And why do you admire that person? I think let's stay contemporary. Let's stay in sport, but let's leave trail. I got to go with my man, Joe Burrow. This guy is, he's on fire right now. This is the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals for those uninitiated, but he is a, he's a force man. And you talk about an intellect, a competitor, a guy with style, but a guy who's also very humble. You know, this is a, this is my kind of sport leader and somebody who's a constant source of inspiration. He's got the hardest job you can have in sport. I honestly, I don't think there's anything harder than to be a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you could argue a pitcher in the MLB or something, but I, I just don't know if one man has that much responsibility and difficulty against him week after week after week. Anyways, that's my guy, and uh, he's. I hope him and the Bengals keep crushing it. Who day? Go Bengals! Yeah. Joe Burrow, also national champion quarterback at Louisiana State University. A great answer to close out a great conversation. Ben Demon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good luck in off season. Can't wait to see what you do next. Pleasure chatting with you, Dylan. The Speed Demon, Mr. Ben Demon, what a guy. Holy smokes, I seriously loved that episode. I think he is gonna be a household name in the near future. I'm stoked that we finally had an opportunity to connect on the pod. Visit the show notes to subscribe to Ben's Substack. I also put links to his Instagram account, his Strava account, and his coaching service. So make sure you go click through, give him some love on the good old internet. Free Trail Pro members, let me know what you thought. Hop in Slack, share your favorite takeaways. Always love and appreciate your feedback. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsors, Speedland, runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off the GS Oak. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com and use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off these great nutrition products, including the orange drink. And then finally, Ketone IQ, get 30% off your first subscription to Ketone IQ by visiting hvmn.com forward slash FREETRAIL30. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Love you dearly. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.